If you're still on the hunt for a sports book to call home, bet the nonstop action of March Madness with my bookie. Enter bracket contests for a chance to take home prizes of up to $25,000 or pick from a huge selection of straight bets, props, and odds boosts. Whatever your style, MyBookie makes it easy to play your way and get paid. Sign up now and take advantage of our generous welcome offer to score a massive first deposit bonus of up to $1,000. All you have to do is claim promo code MADNESS50. But the fun doesn't stop there. Get up to the minute odds, free bets, and expert predictions to help you decide who to put your money on. The best part about MyBookie? You can bet on anything, anytime, from anywhere. Use promo code MADNESS50, that's MADNESS50, to secure your limited-time welcome bonus today. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA Podcast brought to you by our great friends at MyBookie. I know a ton of you have already taken advantage of the great promo deals that MyBookie's offering this year, but there's still some time left. If you haven't taken advantage of it yet, there's still a little bit of time left to jump in on all the action. It's so simple, guys. All you gotta do is go to MyBookie.ag, sign up for a brand new account, and when you do, use our promo code UGA to get a 50% bonus on your first deposit for all new users, or if you want to avoid the playthrough, you can always use the other option, which is promo code 200CASH to get a 10% cash bonus, no strings attached, straight to your account up to $200. So jump in right now while you can at mybookie.ag. So yeah, jump in on that. But as you guys know, I am your host Tyler and I am back again today for another mailbag edition of the Glory UGA podcast. We have a ton of great questions as is always the case Curse and I did our best to give you our most detailed instant reactions to the win over Missouri on Sunday. I was kind of about halfway-ish, a little bit more than halfway through my first rewatch. I'm now about a little bit more than halfway through my third rewatch of the game. So I've got some more thoughts, some more opinions, some more detailed responses to give you guys on a lot of what we saw against Missouri on Saturday. So we have a ton of questions looking back at that game. We also have a few questions looking ahead to yet another big matchup this weekend. Game day coming to town. Lane Kiffin coming to town. We got the Ole Miss Rebels, and we've got a chance to clinch the SEC Eastern Division for the third consecutive year, which would make the sixth time in the last seven years. So huge game. Obviously, we've got some questions that want to look ahead to that game. In fact, we are going to open with such a question. Our first big picture question of the day. We have two of these. We have two questions I think are, are really more big picture type questions. It could be what we call them questions of the week, I guess, is what we could call them. But this first question does a little bit of both things. It looks back a little bit at the Missouri game and also now ahead at this Ole Miss game this weekend. So Terrence asked, I know you said ahead of last week's game that Missouri was the best team Georgia had faced. Would you say the same this week? Is Ole Miss... Georgia's biggest test. Fantastic question, Terrence. Really appreciate it, man. I 
have gone back and forth on this really the past couple of weeks. You know, during the bye week, you can't really help but look ahead a little bit. You don't want to. You want to stay in the moment. You want to be like the team, right? And just focus on the game ahead of you. But as fans, we, we can look ahead a little bit more, right? I've, I still have a little bit of superstition when it comes to that. I can't rid myself of all of that. I understand intellectually that what I think doesn't matter. It has no outcome on the game. I get that. Like Intellectually, we know these things, right? We go to college. We understand this. But just something deep down when you get in the moment, you're like, wait, maybe, but maybe it does have an impact. And if it even has the slightest impact, let's just not do it. So I'm weird like that. But I still could not help myself in the bye week to look ahead a little bit and start thinking about, okay, we got this tough stretch. Florida, Mizzou, Ole Miss at home, then at Tennessee. Hey, you got a little tricky game against Georgia Tech to wrap things up, and nobody's really paying attention to that game. And Georgia Tech's not great, but they're much more capable than they have been in a, in a long time on the flats. So over the past couple of weeks, I've been thinking about it, and I've gone back and forth. Is it Missouri? Is it Ole Miss? Is it Tennessee? Because it's on the road at Tennessee, hostile environment. We know that. And honestly, at different points, I've settled on all three different games. At one point, it was Missouri, then it's Ole Miss, then it's at Tennessee. So I've gone back and forth in this. But I will say this, to this point, and this might even be adjusted from what I said on Sunday's recap episode. I might have said it was Missouri. I don't I don't remember exactly what I said, but I thought a little bit more about it. And I dove into the Ole Miss tape with a fine-tooth comb. I watched basically every game they've played all season long, but now I'm going back and I'm watching it as close as I possibly can, looking for little tells, all those things. And maybe this is just the excitement of the game being this weekend. Maybe, maybe it's that. But I'm going to go ahead and say I do think that Ole Miss is ever so slightly better than Missouri. I still have a ton of respect for Missouri. I think it's a very good football team. I will stand by what I said on the reaction episode and, and say that I think that Missouri is going to be 10-2, and 9-3 and three at worst when this season's all said and done. I think that I would right now project them to beat Tennessee at home this week. It's going to be a hell of a football game, man. It really is. And that, that game, by the way, is right before we play. So if Missouri does beat Tennessee, then it doesn't necessarily matter, at least for the SEC East, what happens against Ole Miss is we would have clinched the SEC East. Now, obviously, we have bigger goals than just the SEC East, so we still need to go out and beat, beat Ole Miss. But we could very well have the entire division clinched by the time we kick off that game or right, right shortly thereafter. But I think the... Missouri offense has more ways to beat you right now than the Tennessee offense. I would say the Tennessee defense is is a little bit better than what we've seen from Missouri, although Missouri is still a good disruptive defense very attacking. We saw that. I think they're going to beat Tennessee. I think they're going to beat Florida. I feel very confident that. And then they have Arkansas on the road, but still Arkansas to end the regular season. But right now, I would project them to win all three of those games. Now, could they drop one? Yeah, they could. I don't see them dropping two, though. Like I think they could They could definitely lose to Tennessee. That's going to be a close, hard-fought game. It's a toss-up-ish game, but let's give Missouri the benefit of the doubt there at home. They don't get the 330 CBS treatment very often, and they get the 330 CBS treatment this week. So I'm going to lean Mizzou there. So I, again, the, the point is I think Missouri is a very good football team. I have a lot of respect for them. However, saying that... I do think that Ole Miss is slightly better. And the numbers spell that out. The numbers aren't everything, guys. But almost all the numbers out there, most of them, are telling you, telling us, that Ole Miss is at least a little bit better than Missouri is. If you look at offensively, we know traditionally with Lane Kiffin, this has been an offensive-driven football team. Their offense actually is not as good this year as dynamically in terms of statistical profile, as it has been years past under Lane Kiffin, but they're still very, very good. One of the best offenses in the SEC. They're third right now in the league in total offense, 478 yards per game, which is about 50 yards better a game than Missouri is right now. Now, yes, Missouri has played us and Ole Miss hasn't, but they've also played Alabama. There's that. Uh, they're about three-tenths of a yard per play better 
than Missouri, which is not insignificant when you're talking about yards per play. They're the number three scoring offense in the league, just, just a hair behind us, which is almost a touchdown better per game than Missouri's offense. They're also a good bit more explosive than Missouri. Guys, Missouri is an explosive offense. We did a hell of a job of taking that away from Missouri with how we were able to defend them and the packages that we used against Missouri to really kind of rein in that passing attack. But Ole Miss has been more explosive, and they do it on the ground and through the air. Now, we're going to obviously dive into this a lot more on the preview episode, but I'm just giving you a quick little taste here. I mean, guys, Ole Miss is very explosive. They got 65 plays of 20 or more yards on the year versus 50 for Missouri. They got 30 plays of 30 or more yards on the year to 24 for Missouri. So they put up more yards per game. They put up more yards per play. They score more points and they're more explosive than Missouri's offense. So offensively, yeah, Missouri's really good, really dangerous, but Ole Miss, I think, is more dangerous, especially in how they attack you. We'll get into this again so much more when we do the, the preview episode, but there's so much misdirection, guys. There's a lot that Missouri does, especially the outside zone, that we don't see that much, but there's a ton that Ole Miss does that we just don't see. We have like no frame of reference with. So that's going to be a challenge, man. It's going to be a challenge. It really is almost like modern-day triple option offense. That's really what they run, more or less. Just looks a little bit different than what like Paul Johnson ran back in the day. Now, I know when you talk about Ole Miss, you say, yeah, well, of course, their offense is good. Their offense is always good. That's been the thing with Lincoln. If offense is good, defense sucks, right? Well, typically, yes. And while their defense is not elite by any stretch of the imagination, I'm not going to try to make it out to be, it is a much improved defense from what we've seen at Ole Miss under Lane Kiffin. I mean, going back to the COVID years, one of the worst defenses in the history of the SEC. Now that was COVID and, you know, take it for what it's worth, but they were not good. They weren't good the year after. Last year, they got a little bit better, but this year they brought in a new defense coordinator. They brought in Pete Golding from Alabama and he has changed their entire approach, their scheme. He's changed really everything about this defense. Again, they're still not elite. They still don't have that type of personnel, but make no mistake about it, guys. They are much better and they do have good players at spots. They just don't have them everywhere on that defense. So secondary can be lit up. Let's just say that. But their front set, in front six, pretty good, pretty disruptive. So if you look at the defensive numbers, they're actually also better than Missouri, believe it or not. I know that's not what you think about when you think Ole Miss, but the numbers are what they are. They are you know, 20 yards per game behind Missouri. So they're giving about 20 yards per game more than Missouri is, but that's a little bit misleading because I've always put more stock on yards per play because that, that takes out like the, the tempo. It's tempo adjusted more or less, right? Because the more plays you run or the more plays your opponents run, the more yards you're going to give up, right? So I look more at the efficiency numbers, which would be yards per play. So Missouri's giving up 5.29 yards per play. Ole Miss giving up 5.09, which is top five in the SEC. And I know, again, that's not elite, but for Ole Miss, we've always said, what we've always said about Ole Miss, we've always said, well, if they can just pair a halfway decent defense with that offense, they're going to have something. Well, that's what they've done, guys, and that's why they are 8-1 right now. And they are, again, like I said, a very disruptive defense. You know, so Missouri gave us issues, right? They were very attacking, aggressive in how they how they played us. That's just what they do. They blitz a lot. They bring a lot of pressure. And they sacked us three times. We had six sacks, guys. We had given up six sacks all year long through the first eight games coming into that game against Missouri. They, they put up three against us. So like a 50% increase in the sacks they've given up in one game. Well, Ole Miss is more disruptive than Missouri is. They're second in the SEC in sacks. Missouri's number five. Ole Miss is also third in the league in tackles for loss. Where's Mizzou? They're nine. Now, of course, I know we can dig a little deeper, and we will do that in the preview episode, but I just want to give you guys some basic numbers here to give you the, the idea behind why I'm saying that I do think Ole Miss is a little bit better than Missouri. I do think both of these teams are 10-2 good. 10-2, 9-3 at worst good. I think that's what these two teams are. 
I wouldn't say there's a massive gap or any sort of significant separation between Ole Miss and Mizzou, but I would lean towards Ole Miss. I think there's more ways that they can hurt you offensively. I think they have more dynamic weapons on offense. I think their scheme is even more unique than what Missouri runs. And defensively, they are simply more disruptive. And I think you could also argue they've played a more difficult schedule. I mean, Missouri's played us at this point. Ole Miss has played Alabama. They've also played LSU, which I know they have issues defensively, but still one of the most, not one of the, the most dynamic offense in all of college football. I still think if Jaden Daniels hadn't gotten hurt late in that game against Alabama, they still had a shot to win that football game. I knew if they won the game, it was have to be in a shootout, but it didn't happen. They got hurt. He got hurt, and they couldn't stop Alabama because their defense is, is terrible. But they played Tulane on the road. Now Tulane didn't have their starting quarterback, Michael Pratt, in the game. They still played Tulane on the road. Tech isn't any good, but it's a power five opponent. They got them at home. I've played AM now. They've gone on the road to Auburn just like we did. Kind of like us, they struggled some on the road against Auburn. And maybe the more you think about it, their schedule is fairly comparable. Missouri did play Kansas State at home. So that's a tough non-con opponent. So pretty comparable schedules. But if any way you slice it, most of the categories that we're talking about with, with the statistical profiles of these two teams, Ole Miss is better. And honestly, when I watch them play, I have a lot of respect for both of them. I've felt most of the year that Ole Miss has a slight bit more to them offensively. And has always kind of concerned me a little bit more. Although, again, I had a ton of respect for Missouri. All right, let's move on to our second big picture question. Let's knock both of these out. Our next one comes from All CFB, our guy Sam, who runs that. So if you guys aren't following All CFB on Twitter, on Instagram, make sure you're doing so. I know a lot of you are. But make sure you are following him at All CFB. But Sam asks, with the playoff picture coming into focus... Who is your projected top four right now? Yeah, man, this is a great question. We are getting that point in the season, guys. We have the playoff rankings have already come out. The first one, the second one's coming out here tomorrow. Yes, I am recording this on Monday, a day early, because I have to go see Theo Vaughn here in Athens at the Classic Center tomorrow. I don't have to. I get to. I'm excited about that. So I had to record this a little bit early. So I have not seen the second Costco playoff rankings release. But based off what I have seen and where I am right now watching all these teams, I think the top four, and the way I read this question, Sam, I could be wrong here, man, but the way I'm reading this is like when it's all said and done, the final rankings release, who's going to be the top four. I think the winner of the SEC championship game, Georgia or Alabama, if it is one of those teams of one loss, I think that's going to be the case. I think whoever wins the game will have one loss or potentially zero in our case, if we can get to that point. Still have a lot of tough games ahead of us, but we could potentially have zero losses. But I think the winner of that game is going to have a spot in the college football playoff. The winner of the Big Ten is going to have a spot in the college football playoff, whether that is Michigan or Ohio State. I know Michigan obviously has a big matchup with Penn State this weekend. I know that's in Happy Valley. I still like Michigan in that game. I just don't trust the Penn State offense. I don't think they're good enough right now to score enough points on Michigan to win that football game. I actually don't even know what the spread is right now. I need to check that out. But I would project Michigan to win that game. I think you're going to see Michigan defeat Ohio State once again. Now, we'll see without the sign-stealing stuff. I don't know, but I still think Michigan's a better football team. They get that game in the big house. I think it's probably going to be Michigan, but Michigan-Ohio State, whoever wins that, that conference. I think Oregon's going to get in, guys. I don't think Oregon's losing again. I don't. I, I actually hope it's Washington. I know I love Dan Lanning, but I have a I have a ticket on Washington to win the Pac-12, and I also have a ticket on Washington to make the college football playoffs. So they're still in it. Obviously, they're undefeated, but they have been getting by with the skin of their teeth here the past couple weeks, and some of those games have not been against very good football teams, like Stanford a couple weeks ago outgained Washington. So that hasn't been altogether inspiring with Washington, but they've still won football games. They do have that win over Oregon. I still I think Oregon's a better football team. If Dan Lanning just didn't go hyper-aggressive in that game, I they win that football game. It's pretty clear to me. So I would 
project Oregon. I think Oregon is one of the best four teams in the country right now. So I'm going to say Oregon gets to the Pac-12 with one loss, wins the Pac-12 title, and makes it to the college playoffs. That gives you three. And if it's not Oregon, it's going to be Washington. I think whoever wins the Pac-12, Oregon or Washington, is going to do so with one or fewer losses, and they are going to make the college football playoffs. So that's three right there. Now, the fourth spot is where things get a little bit interesting. You have Florida State sitting out there still undefeated. You also have Texas sitting out there with one loss in the Big 12. And then you have the SEC Championship game. So what if we get to the SEC Championship game? We're undefeated. Now, obviously, we have two tough games. Three, two and a half-ish tough games. Do we want to call Tech a tough game? I I don't want to call Tech a tough game. But two really tough games and maybe a trickier game than it usually is against Georgia Tech at the end of the season on the road following this stretch of really tough games. So if we can get through this stretch undefeated, and let's say we face Alabama in the SEC Championship game, and let's say for some reason we, we drop that game. Whoa, okay. Now, now it gets interesting, all right? So Georgia would have wins over Ole Miss. In this scenario, Georgia would have wins over Ole Miss and Missouri, who I think will both end up, again, like I said, 10-2, and 9-3 at worst. Ole Miss is going to end up 10-2 and two if they lose to us. They're not going to lose to Mississippi State. Mississippi State is freaking terrible. And I already laid out, I think Mizzou should win the rest of their games, but they drop one. That might happen. I don't see them dropping more than one. And our loss would be a postseason loss in our conference title game against Alabama, who is a one-loss team at that point, likely. Now, if Florida State is undefeated and they win the ACC title game, they have wins over... I mean, Clemson, I don't know why that's a good win for them now. People still want to claim that as a good win. They're using Clemson like Clemson is Clemson of the old. That's that's not what Clemson is this year. Notre Dame win notwithstanding. But the LSU win, neutral side, that's a good win for them. Outside of that, though, I mean, what are their good wins? They're not really going to have many. But still, an undefeated Power 5 team, conference champion in FSU, if they go undefeated, is going to make the college football playoff over a one-loss Georgia, even if our one loss is to Alabama in the conference championship game. I think a one-loss Texas if they don't lose any more games and they win the Big 12 and we drop that game to Alabama in the SEC Championship game, I think a one-loss Texas gets in over us. Now, in that scenario, obviously, a zero-loss Florida State, undefeated Florida State, will get in over Texas. But if Florida State drops one somewhere, I think the argument is between ACC champion Florida State and Big 12 champion Texas. Who gets in there? Both have good non-con wins. I think Texas probably is the better win on the road at Alabama. It probably also depends on if Florida State loses a game, who do they lose to? But if we want to get in without winning the SEC championship game, we're going to need some help. We are going to have to be rooting. I already have been rooting for this, guys. I want all these other teams in contention. I want them all to lose. We need Florida State to drop a game somewhere in the regular season. Honestly, we also need them to lose the ACC title game. Maybe they don't lose one in the regular season. Maybe they just drop the ACC title game. Like, we have a shot there. I think, honestly, I think our resume would be better than Florida State's at that point. I know people wouldn't say that, you know, three, four weeks ago, but with the way this season's going to end, if we win the right games, I think you make the argument that our resume would be stronger and our loss would have been a better loss losing to Alabama in the SEC title game versus Florida State losing whoever they would lose to in the ACC title game, maybe Louisville. And then we need Texas to drop another game. I was devastated when Texas pulled it out against Kansas State. I wanted, I mean, I had Kansas, I, I still won the bet there because I had Kansas State plus four, but man, I really wanted, that was the game I thought Texas had a shot to lose. I don't know if they have any more games on the regular season schedule they have a chance to lose. I just don't see it happening. That was the one, especially without Quinn Ewers. That was the game. And Kansas State had a shot, man. I think it was a ridiculous call for them to go for on fourth down there in overtime. You have a backup quarterback with Texas. You have your full your full arsenal. I think you put to another overtime and you try to win that football game that way. I, I get the argue, the old school argument, hey, you're on the road, you play with house money and you go for it on fourth down. I personally I kick the field goal there. I push into second overtime. With again with Texas with Malik Murphy, he's not been in that situation. He's a backup quarterback, and you've got two really good quarterbacks that you're working with. 
I think that was a horrible call. At the moment, I said, what are you doing, Kansas State? And yes, of course, they blew it. So bottom line is, if we lose the SEC title game, we're going to need a lot of help. We're going to need a lot of help from the Big 12 and from the ACC taking out Texas again and then taking out Florida State. I think everyone in the Bulldog Nation should be big Miami fans this weekend with that Miami-Florida State game. And honestly, I know we hate Florida. Only time I would cheer for Florida is if them winning helps us and Florida beating Florida State, at least in the short term, would be very, very good for us this year. Probably not going to happen, but hey, Florida gave them a game last year and Florida's better than this year than they were last year. So anything could happen there. But yeah, we need Florida State to lose. We need Texas to lose. That would be very helpful. But if I brought this all together, had to pick four teams right now, I think that the top three are pretty clear to me. Whoever wins the SEC, if that team's a one loss or undefeated team, which I think is going to be the case, so it's Georgia, Alabama. I think it's going to be Michigan, whoever wins the Big Ten, Michigan or Ohio State, but I think it's going to be Michigan right now. I think whoever wins the Pac-12, Oregon or Washington, I would lean Oregon right now. I think that's that's three teams right there. That fourth team is up for grabs. That totally depends on how these next couple of weeks go. If I had to project right now, based on path to the playoff, I would say Florida State. I mean, their remaining games are Miami at home, uh, North Alabama, and then at Florida ACC title game probably against Louisville at this point. It is unlikely that they drop any of those games. And if they don't drop any of those games, they are going to get in. I don't care if it's Georgia as a one-loss conference runner-up. That's not. It doesn't matter. Florida State's going to be undefeated conference champion, and we get left out. That's just the reality. It's the same. Hey, man, I wish we had a 12-team playoff, but hey, we don't. At least not yet. So yeah, I go SEC champion, Big Ten champion, Pac-12 champion, and Florida State if it's an undefeated Florida State team, which is right now what I would project. It's not impossible that, that they could lose a game because they haven't been playing great, but right now, look at the schedule. They shouldn't lose any of those games the rest of the way. But all right, guys, those were our two big picture questions of the week, but let's go ahead before we move into the rest of our questions and get a quick break here. Let me remind you about our great friends at MyBookie, and MyBookie is a sportsbook that I trust, guys. I've used them for a long time now. I've tried different sportsbooks going back years and years, but once I found MyBookie, it was game over for me. MyBookie was the one that had all the the great deposit options for me that worked for me. It was a hassle-free process. Uh, cash outs were very, very easy. Got that money very quickly. Great customer service. So it, it's a no-brainer for me. Um, my bookie has has treated me well, and I know that they will treat you well if you give them a shot. And if you do decide to give them a shot and jump in on all the action, it's a very simple process, guys, to sign up for an account. All you got to do is go to mybookie.ag, use our promo code, which is UGA, to get a 50% cash bonus on top of that first deposit for all new users. But if you don't want to deal with the playthrough because you're kind of new to the process, I get that. But you can use the other promo code, 200 cash. You get a no strings attached, 10% cash bonus added straight to your account. You can just bet your initial deposit and that money is there in your in your account to do whatever you want to do with it, even withdraw it if you want to do that. Again, no strings attached. So if you are looking to get on the action, if you've been on the fence, you've been thinking about it, now is the time in my bookie is the sportsbook for you guys to use. So jump in on all of this while you can and bet anything, anytime, anywhere, only with my bookie. All right, guys, let's keep this train rolling here. We got a bunch more questions to get to. And our next question comes from Derek. And one of the big storylines coming out of that win over Missouri is once again an injury storyline. Pop Dumas Johnson, preseason All American inside linebacker, is we don't know for sure, for sure he's out. Kirby was somewhat non-committal about that, said that he's trying some different ways to maybe possibly kind of sort of get back, but we don't know when he'll get back. Maybe this week, maybe not. Very, very ambiguous. 
in his response to that. So who knows? I mean, you can always club up the arm. I just don't, I don't know how the severity of the fracture and exactly what bone is fractured. I don't know. With Kirby playing it coy like that, he's usually very forthcoming with injuries. It kind of leads me to believe that maybe he might have a shot at playing. Maybe Kirby just doesn't really know right now. That's probably the reality of the situation. But I think it's kind of tough to expect him to play. If he does, that's great. But we know that he has suffered a fracture of some sort in his in one of his arms, right? That's what we're, I think it was his right arm. And naturally, when you're talking about a preseason All-American, that is a, that's a blow, right? And we talked about that a little bit on our instant reaction episode on Sunday. But of course, there's some more questions about this. So let's jump into it. Derek asks, do you think we could be faster at middle linebacker with the younger guys playing more now because of injury? Got to cover sideline to sideline. Well, yes, I, I totally do agree with that, Derek. I do think that we get more athletic at inside linebacker when Pop is not in the game, especially when Raylan Wilson is on the field. That guy might be the most athletic of all the inside linebackers on the team, and that includes Smile, Mun, and Smile. That, they're certainly neck and neck there, but I think Raylan Wilson is an incredible athlete. Smile certainly ahead of him right now, but by the time Raylan's done, I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case. But it, it, we are more athletic. We're faster. We're more athletic. We move sideline to sideline better, as you mentioned there. We cover more ground. We have more range with those inside linebackers. Now, the issue becomes a couple of things. Number one, we all know that Pop is a very experienced linebacker. You know, to a year and a half in our system of actual playing time. And he's played in some big-time games, and he's seen a lot, a lot more than guys like C.J. Allen, although C.J. has played a ton for us all throughout the year, really from week one. Raylan was dealing with an injury early in the year, so he hasn't played as much, but he was here back in, in spring practice, so he's been with the program for a while and a lot of walkthroughs. He just hasn't played as much. But when you play a team like Ole Miss, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in the preview episode, it does concern me. Guys, I, I will say I'm borderline freaking out right now about the linebacker situation, not because I don't believe in the potential of C.J. Allen and Raylan Wilson. I'm very high on both those guys. I think both of them long-term will be better than Pop Dumas Johnson. I do believe that. I've made that pretty clear all year long. But in a game like this against Missouri, with what they do offensively, they rely heavily on misdirection. They have a couple of core plays. And they work constraints heavily off of those plays. They're all about getting your eyes in the wrong spot. They really want to exploit poor eye discipline. They want to have you thinking and guessing out there. And they want to put you in conflict. And that's tough enough for even experienced linebackers, let alone guys who have played very little football for you and are playing in a game like this against an opponent like this that they've never really seen. They're going to do some things to you then that they have never seen. And they haven't been in these kind of moments before. That's tough. And that has me heavily concerned. This is the type of game, for all the Pop's flaws, and there are there are a number of them. He's not the greatest athlete. But these next two games, Ole Miss and Tennessee, are games that Pop Dumas Johnson is built for. Those are the types of games that that guy thrives in. When you play teams that want to run the football between the tackles right at you, that is what that man is built for. That's what made him a preseason All-American inside linebacker. The guy doesn't run side on the sideline as well as anyone. Like I think every other inside linebacker on the team is more athletic than Pop, but between the tackles, he's the best, at least right now. I think CJ Allen can be that guy eventually. Right now, Pop is that guy. So, his experience and just the fit for these next two offenses is very, very concerning for me. I know how that sounds coming from someone who has been very critical of Pop at times, not just this year, but even going back to last year. 
But as I've said all along, it's not that Pop isn't a good player. I just think that he doesn't play to his abilities all the time. And there are some clear deficiencies in terms of athleticism. He's also become a really good blitzer for us. And when we don't have a ton of natural pass rushers, that losing that does hurt. Now, we have been fortunate that we are starting to see the emergence of some more of these pass rushers, but we're still only getting guys like Jalen Walker and Damon Wilson on the field really when we're in our dying package. I know we ran that more against Missouri than we typically do, but I don't know how much you will do that against against Ole Miss because they do want to run the football right at you. This is a very physical offense. I know you think Lane Kiffin, you think all spread it out, finesse. No, 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 no. This is a physical run right down your throw offense. That's what they want to do, and they work everything else off of that. So, yes, Derek, to answer your question, I do think we get more athletic without pop on the field with the younger guys. I do believe that, but does that mean better against these next two opponents where Pop would kind of thrive in those kind of games against those kinds of opponents. I don't necessarily know that's the case. I hope it is. I hope it is. I just, I don't know, man. I am uh, I am very concerned about that. It's one of my biggest concerns. Maybe, probably my biggest concern heading into this game. All right, next up, we got a question from Billy the Kid. Got a couple questions about the offensive line. This one specifically is about Amarius Mims. He asks, when Amarius Mims returns, what does the starting offensive line look like in your opinion? Another great question, Billy. Really, really appreciate it, man. Yeah, this is uh, something that needs to happen. We need to get Marius back, like now. Xavier Truss has done an admirable job trying to fill in at right tackle, and he's done fairly well. He's gotten better with each and every game, except for maybe last week was not a, a vintage game for Xavier Truss and the way they play. I mean, that was always going to be a tough game for him. As aggressive as they are, some of the good pass rushers that they have, we need to Marius back. He is the, in my opinion, the only surefire first-round draft pick on the offensive line right now. And maybe Cedric Van Pran works himself into that, maybe. But Amarius Mims, when he comes out, is a first-round talent. Now, he missed a lot this year, so if he comes out after this year, is he going to be in the first round? I don't know. I think it depends on how much he plays the rest of the way and how healthy he is and how he performs. But physically, he is a first-round talent. So yes, we do need to get Amarius back. The question, as you asked, Billy, is... Well, you don't really ask it, but yeah, when does he come back? That's the thing. It's like, when does this guy come back? He practiced each of the last two weeks. Now, when you're talking about offensive lineman, when you're dealing with a high ankle sprain, he had the tightrope surgery just like Brock did a couple weeks ago. But Amarius had his back in September, right after we played South Carolina. Don't forget, guys, he hurt his ankle week three. That was against South Carolina. Y'all can double check my math, but if my math is correct, this Saturday will be two months, eight weeks from that injury. And the whole purpose behind having tightrope surgery is to reduce the recovery time to four to six weeks, down from six to eight weeks. So I, I, I don't know what's going on here. I know he's a bigger guy and you put more weight on the ankle and th there's different degrees of severity with these ankle injuries. They're not all the same, of course. And you got to work yourself back into shape. And Kirby did say in his press conference today that if Amarius needed to play, he could have played. He did dress out the last two weeks. He's gone through practice the last couple of weeks. It's just a matter of getting him back to where he feels like he's 100% and feels confident in the ankle and where he's playing better than the guys that are in the game right now. Now, I have a hard time believing that you know 90% of Amarius Mims at right tackle is not better than 100% of Xavier Truss. But, hey, our coach is the one who get, they get paid to make these decisions. But we need this guy back. We need him at 100%. And by God, if he's not after eight weeks or at least close enough to it. I don't I don't know, man. I don't know. But let's say for argument's sake that Amarius is back this week. So what do we do offensive line-wise? Okay, so Xavier Truss, does he move back to left guard, which is where he was playing to open the season? I don't know if he does, because I do think that Dylan Fairchild and Micah Morris have a really nice rotation there. They're both playing really well for us. I think they're better playing better right now than Truss was earlier in the year, and he also hasn't been really repping at left guard that much recently. Now, here's another thought. What if you move Xavier Trust to left tackle? I 
that doesn't encourage me because I don't I don't know if you know he struggles at right tackle at times protecting against speed rushers. I mean, you put him a left tackle, that doesn't sound all that enticing to me. Ernest Green is a better athlete than Trust. I think long-term will be a better offensive lineman, but he's younger. And he, while he has improved as the season has progressed, he did not play what each week over the past like month or so, he's gotten better and better and better. But against Missouri, I don't want to call it a regression, but it was just a step back, at least for one week. And the way they play is tough. They make it confusing for you. They're really aggressive. And, and that's tough for a young guy. So I don't know. Like, do you put do you open up that competition and say, all right, we're gonna we're gonna see who's better. We trust Truss or Ernest Green out there. And maybe it comes down to who the coaches trust more, who we think is playing better. We think Ernest Green left tackle is playing better than the guys are that are young playing at left guard with Fairchild and Morris. I think that's gonna factor in. You gotta decide. Who's playing best right now and compare that to what you think you're going to get out of Xavier Trust? If it is me, I say Xavier Trust is the odd man out. I do think that's unlikely. However, he is a senior and he's got experience. So I know Kirby puts a premium on that. I just, I think he is the guy on the offensive line. If there's an odd man out, I think we have better options at tackle. And honestly, I think we have better options at guard. Now, will he be in some sort of rotation? That's very possible I mean maybe when Mims comes back he might be playing but we were rotating them series by series or so try to get Mims back into the, into the rhythm and get that conditioning back that's very possible too maybe it's a three-man rotation at, at right tackle and left tackle so there's a lot of possibilities there I mean Van Pran we know is playing center we know that Tate Rouse gonna be right guard uh, when Mims comes back he's going to play right tackle maybe he rotates some he's gonna play right tackle I think left guard is the spot that's open I think that the guys that are playing there right now with Fairchild and Morris have played better than what we saw from Xavier Trust early in the year and, and what we saw from Trust at times last year as well. I think Ernest Green has shown promise and proven he's a better athlete, but I think a, a rotation could certainly be in the cards there. Now, the next question from Art is essentially on the same lines. I basically just alluded to this. Art asks, is there a weak link on the offensive line? If so, who is it? When slash if Mims returns, does his return fix the issue? I think it's pretty clear what I was just saying there. If there is a weak link, and I don't, I think weak link is way too strong of a word. I don't know if he is the weak link, but the weakest of the offensive linemen, in my opinion, would be Xavier Trust. He's the most inconsistent. Now, he's a big physical guy, and when he has a guy head up on him in the run game, he's usually pretty good on that. But he has to get up to the second level, and he's not exactly clear on who to block and speed rushers on the edge. He struggles, man. He just does. I think he is probably the lowest level athlete among all those guys that are in the regular rotation along the offensive line. So I I don't like the term weak links. I don't know if that's true. He's a good player. He's just not, in my opinion, as good as the other guys. And when Mims comes back, I do think that fixes that because it makes it makes trust more of like a, a luxury. You don't have to rely on him. So yeah, I think it certainly does help to get the, again, like I said, the one guy on the offensive line right now that I feel confident saying is a surefire first-round draft, at least in terms of his ability, his talent level. All right, the next question we have is honestly a question that we got from quite a few different people, at least a very similar question from quite a few different people, but we're going to go with the one that we got from Kevin because that was the first one that I saw, and Kevin asked, why was Missouri able to get the edge so consistently with their stretch run game? It's a great question, Kevin. We did discuss a little bit on the recap episode, but I will certainly go into more detail here for you guys. And look, it was a combination of things. There wasn't just one reason why Missouri was able to hurt us with that outside zone stretch running play. But first and foremost, let's just be real about this. We simply do not have the caliber defensive lineman this season that we have enjoyed in years past, at least the recent past, guys like Jordan Davis and Devontae White and Jalen Carter. We don't have those guys on the interior of our defensive line. 
which means that we are not able to control line of scrimmage as well as we have in the past couple of seasons. Also, when you don't have those type of guys on the defensive line that command double teams, command all that attention, it allows offensive linemen to get up more to the second level and on your linebackers more than they have in years past. That's one of the reasons that N'Kobe Dean and Quay Walker and Chain Tindall, all those guys were so good is because they didn't have dudes in their face. They were running free more often than not because Jordan Davis and Devontae Weil and, and Jaden Carter were eating up all of those blocks. This goes back to something I was talking about, I think during the bye week on the mailbag episode, we have a lot of guys right now in the defensive line that I believe are better fits as one-gap defensive linemen. Their primary strengths, guys like Warren Brinson and guys like Christian Miller, their primary strengths right now are their quickness and their ability to get upfield in between gaps and create havoc in the backfield. Well, that's great, but traditionally what we have run at Georgia under Kirby Smart is a heavy two-gap system with our defensive linemen where we are controlling line of scrimmage, we are playing two gaps, we are reading the offensive linemen, we are reading the running back, and we are commanding a lot of double teams. And when you play football like that, one of the reasons we lean towards playing more of a two-gap style defensively is because it frees up the linebackers to run free and make plays. And that's a key part of what we try to do schematically with our defense. That has been more difficult for us this year. We're kind of caught in between here. We're kind of in a square peg, round hole scenario where we're trying to play our traditional two-gap stuff but we don't really have the personnel to do that effectively or as effectively as we have in the past. Nas Stackhouse is really the only guy that does that consistently well. Zion Logan Times can do that, but not particularly well. There's a reason he was behind all those other guys the past couple of years. But if you allow your guys to one gap and you allow them more free reign there on the defensive line, well, if you don't get to the quarterback, you don't get to the running back, you don't make the play in the backfield, oftentimes that creates those natural running lanes for the offense to exploit. And now you have those offensive linemen that previously, in the past couple of years, were still blocking our defensive linemen. Well, they're now up on the, on the linebackers. So if the defensive tackle, if they're one guy, but they don't make the play in the backfield, well, you, it's much tougher for the inside linebackers to now make the play because they have more guys in their face. So that's certainly a part of it. But another part of it, at least on Saturday against Missouri, was the personnel packages that we were using in that game. Now, we did not use our dying package exclusively in this game, but we came out in the first drive, guys, and we were in that dying package. We were trying to force Missouri to run the ball at us and do it consistently enough to be able to score enough points to be able to beat us. That was the calculus that we went into that game with defensively, with our game plan. We were playing the yacht. What I've often said for years now on this show, it's just, you know, back to my coaching days, this is what you try to make an offense do. You try to make an offense play left-handed. What I mean by that is you try to make them do what they aren't good at. You don't let them beat you doing what they do, what they want to do, what they're best at. You have to make them beat you doing something other than that. And what Missouri was best at really all year was creating big plays in the passing game with that Luther Bird and Brady Cook hookup. So how do we try to make them play left-handed? How do we try to take them out of that? Well, we responded with our personnel packages. We used our dime package, which we typically exclusively use in third and long situations. We were using that on standard downs. Again, not every single series, not every single situation, every single down, but liberally throughout the game. And why do you not see us do that on the regular on standard downs in other games? Well, because we are vulnerable to the run with that personnel grouping. When you have Jalen Walker, as dynamic as he is as a pass rusher, and I do believe he's the best pass rusher on natural pass rusher on this team, him and Michael Williams. Right now, I would give the edge to Jalen because that dude is just explosive off the edge. 
but he's not really a jack linebacker. He's an inside linebacker. He's bigger than your average inside linebacker, but he's still not as big as your typical jack linebacker. And Jalen Walker played 50% of our defensive snaps, guys, against Missouri. 50%. Now, that might not mean anything to you in isolation, but when I tell you that against Florida, he played 19% of our snaps, and against Vandy, he played 20% of our defensive snaps, you see we have more than double the amount of reps that this guy has been getting on a game-in, game-out basis. He got more than double the amount of reps against Missouri. And again, when he's out there playing Jack linebacker, we just simply are not going to be as good against the run because him setting the edge is not why he's out there. But when he's out there, when they run the football, he's going to be asked to. And that's just really not what he is built to do right now. He's an inside linebacker. And then on top of that, when we bring our dime package in, we also typically slide Michael Williams down as an interior defensive lineman as, as a three-tech guy. And Michael Williams is 265 pounds, guys. That is not your typical interior defensive lineman in the SEC. We move him down there in those situations because we want to get him as a pass rusher, one of our best pass rushers, matched up on a, on a guard who are typically not your best pass-blocking offensive lineman. And that's great when it's obvious passing situations and you're trying to defend against the pass, but when they run the ball, that creates issues. So I think from our standpoint... Those two things combined to make it tough on us to stop that outside zone stretch run play that Missouri runs so well. And then the other part, this is more of a Missouri thing, as we laid out on the reaction episode, they just run it so well, guys, because that's what they do. That's about 85 to 90% of their offensive run game. That is what they do. And when they do it as well as they do, and as often as they do, and we don't really ever see that. I'm not saying that we don't see teams that run outside zone, but we don't see it near as much with any other team as we did against Missouri. And really, inside zone is a far more common play than outside zone. We just don't have as many reps banked defending that, that scheme and that play as they do running that play. They're just simply better at running it than we are at stopping it. And, and I'll go back and say exactly what I said on the, on the recap episode, just kind of hammer this home. It's not the triple option. Missouri does not run the triple option. But I kind of hearken it back to Paul Johnson and Georgia Tech. And think about how difficult it was sometimes defending that triple option offense. What made it so difficult? It wasn't that they had better athletes. They didn't. What made it so difficult is that they had just a few plays that they ran over and over and over and over again. Every single play, every single practice, every single offseason, that's what they did. While the defenses that were playing against them only practiced defending those plays one week every year. Now, sure, you might work a little bit into your like, your bye week, maybe a little bit into spring practice, but really, you have one week out of the year that you are exclusively focusing on defending that style of play, that style of offense, and you're typically playing a defense that you don't normally play when you play them, so you're not as good at it. They are much better, like Tech was much better at running the triple option than teams were stopping, and that's what made them difficult at times. So I think when you combine all of those things together, that's really what accounts for the issues that we had stopped in the Missouri run game. And let's also say this, I, I know that they ran the ball better on us than we are typically accustomed to seeing teams run the ball on us. They had a running back go over 100 yards himself for the first time since 2020, and you wouldn't think Cody Schrader was going to be that guy, although I told you guys coming into last week's game that he was the second leading rusher in the SEC, averaging right at 100 yards per game. It's not like this guy just came out of nowhere and had a career game against Georgia. That's not what happened. He's been awesome all year long. And also, by the way, another reason why they were so effective running the ball, he's just a great fit for that system. It's a one-cut one downhill system. He's a one-cut downhill runner who runs hard with great physicality. And it's just tough to bring down, especially when you were playing with lighter defenders. But the longest run that Schrader had, as effective as he was for most of the game running the football, the longest run he had in that game was 13 yards. Again, I go back to what was our goal. We were trying to make them play left-handed. What does that mean? Well, number one, you want to take them out of their pass game. Number two, limit explosive plays. That's exactly what we did. They had one explosive play. 
I really, the only explosive play they had in that game was the the touchdown on Luther Burden on the first drive. I guess you could say maybe one of the scrambles that Brady Cook had was kind of an explosive play, fine, whatever. But really, in terms of what that team does, they want explosive plays, they want to put pressure on defenses, and they just really weren't able to do that because of the game plan that we implemented against them. And part of that game plan was go- going to be giving up a few more yards on the ground than, than we usually want to. But at the end of the day, it's about winning the, winning the game and limiting their offense. And that's exactly what we did. Okay, let's move along here. Our next question comes from Jake. Always appreciate it, Jake. And Jake asks, are we better with the Ladd-Delp combo over Bowers alone without Ladd? That's a really interesting question, Jake. I love it, actually. That's a great question. This is going to make me think about it for a minute here. Bowers, in my opinion, as I've said all throughout the season, and I'm not alone in this. I know most of you feel the same way, is the best player in college football when he's healthy. Ladd McConkey is a very good receiver when he is healthy, as he has demonstrated the past two weeks, even though he's still not fully healthy. But how close is Ladd McConkey to, to Brock Bowers in terms of his impact on the team? Well, he's not Brock Bowers. We know that. Brock's going to be drafted in the first round. Ladd is not going to sniff the first round. I think Ladd will be drafted higher than people think that he will, but he's not going to be a first-round guy. He's not going to go down as one of the best players to ever play college football like Brock Bowers is, in my opinion. But again, your question is an interesting one, because if you base this on production and not necessarily talent level, I think all of a sudden you have a little bit of an argument here because what has Ladd done without Brock Bowers on the field? He went for, what, 135 against Florida, just a hair under 96 yards, 95 yards against Missouri. So we're talking about 230 over the past two weeks combined. We've essentially shifted the focal point of our offense from Brock Bowers to Ladd McConkie, and he's responded in a big way with great production. Bowers-esque production? And Delp has been, you know, through these two games has been fairly similar in his production from when we had Brock and we don't have Brock. So I I think the production hasn't really dipped off. If you're saying, okay, Ladd McConkey's not going to be the focal point filling in for Brock Bowers, although obviously they play different positions, but you still have Oscar Delp. The production's been essentially the same when you look at those two players, Brock Bowers and Ladd McConkey. But I would still say that we are better with Brock without Ladd McConkey than we are with Ladd without Brock. And here's why. It's not so much just about their production. It's about what it does for the rest of the team. Brock just commands more attention than Ladd does. And also, go back to what we do personnel-wise. We have not run much 12 personnel at all outside of goal line situations, red zone situations, the past two weeks without Brock Bowers. We simply have not. Now, that that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing, right? Because there's different ways you can attack defenses. But one of the things that has made us so effective over the past couple of years, going back to when we had Darnell Washington Brock Bowers, was the ability to create mismatches in those advantages from a matchup standpoint when you're in 12 personnel. Because what do defenses have to do? When you have Darnell Washington, you have Brock Bowers, you have Oscar Delp, you have Brock Bowers on the field, they have to respond with heavier personnel to defend our run game. Because if you don't, then we're going to run the ball at you. That's one of the reasons I was concerned about our run game earlier in the year. But we've started to get that figured out more. Obviously, it wasn't a banner day on Saturday against Missouri, but we were fine enough in that game to be able to win it. But if defenses want to go with the heavy personnel, then now you give us a lot of advantages from a matchup standpoint in the passing game, and we just gut you. We just kill you. So I think it has been tougher for us to create the kind of matchups that we like to without Brock. And that's why I would say we're better. Obviously, you want to have both guys healthy. That's best case scenario. And I'm just very excited for the day that actually happens this season. Because then we'll really have something. We've been one of the best offenses, not just in the SEC, but in the country, without both those guys really healthy at the same time. But that day is coming at some point. But if we had to pick one or the other, Brock without Ladd or Ladd without Brock, I would still lean Brock without Ladd. Because number one, I do think Brock Bowers is just a better overall talent. Number two, I think it creates better matchups for us in the passing game and also the run game as well. 
Alright guys, so we still have plenty of questions left, but I do want to take a quick break before I forget here, because I will forget, and remind you about our great friends at Alumni Hall. Guys, the holiday season is essentially here. If you guys have wives like mine, as soon as Halloween is over, what do they want to do? Well, they bring out the Christmas decorations, and it's full steam ahead. Screw Thanksgiving. We don't even think about that. We're full steam ahead to Christmas, and I know a lot of you are probably maybe the same way yourself, or have spouses that are very much the same way. So, we are in the holiday season, guys. And now that we are in the holiday season, there is no better place to do the Christmas shopping for all the Georgia fans in your life, all your loved ones that are diehard Georgia fans like you and I are. There's no better place to shop for them than at Alumni Hall because they're going to have whatever your loved one wants. They're going to have it. They have a great men's selection, women's selection. They have all the brands you could possibly think of. Honestly, guys, from a women's selection standpoint, they have by far the best selection of women's clothing that I have ever seen. And yes, I spend maybe even more time in the women's clothes than I do the men's because I'm trying to, every time I, I go to alumni hall, I feel guilty. And I feel like okay, if I'm, if I'm going to bring something home for myself, I got to bring my wife something as well. So trust me, I spend a lot of time there and I'm always impressed by the selection of women's clothes they have. My wife is never disappointed with what I bring home from alumni hall. So do yourself a solid if you're shopping for yourself or do a solid for the loved ones in your life and pick up all the great greatest George gear at Alumni Hall today. Get your Christmas shopping done. Get done early so you don't have to worry about it. And Alumni Hall will take care of you. Trust me on that. Because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldog shop. All right, guys, we are far from done. We have quite a few questions left. Let's try to roll through these. Now, these next, what, two, three questions that we have deal with the cornerback position. So Jamie asks, is Kamari Lasseter a first-round pick after this performance against Missouri? And you're right, Jamie. What a performance it was against Missouri by Kamari Lasseter. One of the better performances of his career, especially when you factor in he was playing a position that he doesn't really play. Now, he's he's been around for a while. He's, he's kind of cross-trained at times, especially early in his career at that position, trying to find a way on the field. So it wasn't like he's never taken reps there, but not really in a game. So just an incredible performance and a, a clutch performance against a really good Missouri team and trying to take one of the best receivers, not just in the SEC, but in the entire country in Luther Burden, out of this game. And when Luther Burden was matched up with Kamari Laster, he wasn't getting much. And when Kamari shows that he can play that position on top of how well he plays outside, we already know what he can do as an outside corner, but when you can show the ability to defend in the slot that way, okay, man, you just made yourself some money. Now, is Kamari Laster a surefire first on draft because he worked himself into that? I can't sit here and say that definitively. I think what I can say is that he has worked himself into the conversation. If he continues to put together performances like that down the stretch in high-profile games, if he has a, a good combine, has good interviews, all that, I mean, all that stuff matters, right? But I think he's now on the radar, which maybe he wasn't altogether there prior to this game. I think it certainly opened some eyes, and it's putting that on film is going to do nothing but help his opportunity to maybe work himself into that first round. Now, right now, I still probably lean him being a second-round guy probably, but I don't think it's out of the question. I don't think it's out of the question. Again, if he continues to perform that level and if we see him do that again against other teams down the stretch, then he has a chance. I think he's put himself on the radar as a potential first-round pick and certainly put himself in that conversation. All right, the next question also deals with the cornerback position, but this one is not about Kamari Laster. This one is about Dalen Everett. Jason asks, is Dalen Everett a freshman or a redshirt freshman? Playing cornerback is hard and developing while playing it is difficult. He's just got to get more consistent. I do agree with that, Jason. Playing cornerback might be one of the 
I know it's one of the most difficult positions to play. It might be the most difficult position to play because you're out there more often than not. You're on an island, and when you screw up and you mess up, it's it's plain for everyone to see. Everyone just sees you get roasted. It's a tough spot, especially with the way the rules have been written these days where you basically just can't even do anything to try to defend the receiver. I mean, it's it's very difficult to play that position and do it without committing penalties. They, they make it almost impossible, honestly, to, to do that. That's why I don't really believe in the concept of a shutdown corner anymore. I believe that that used to be a thing once upon a time when you used to actually be able to, to play defense, but I don't know if you're even allowed to be a shutdown corner anymore with the way that the rules are written the way, and the way the game's just officiated. Not even the way that it, the rules are written. That's part of it. Also, just the way it's officiated. I mean, offensive pass interference. I mean, I would say about half the pass interferences are called are really offensive pass interference, but they they call that what? Like one twenty-fifth of the time? They never call that unless it's like a pick play. But the push-offs, that's very, very real. But if there's any kind of contact, whether it's the offensive or defensive player initiating it, they're going to nine times out of 10, going to call it on the defender. And that's just the way the game's officiated. So you're right. It is a very tough spot to play, especially for a young player. Now, Dalen Everett is not a freshman. He's not a redshirt freshman. He's a second-year player, but he's a sophomore. He was a big-time special teams player for us last year. So he played more than four games. So he is a true sophomore this season. But freshman, redshirt freshman, sophomore, whatever, your point stands. He's not a super experienced player at that position. He still has time to develop. He still needs to develop. And the thing that I am encouraged about with Dalen is more often than not, he is in relatively good position. He's relatively in phase. There's been very few situations where he has been just abused this year, where he has been completely out of position and just torched. That's not what's happening. It's a, it's kind of what I was saying on the reaction episode. It's a lot of what was going on with Keely Ringo is that you're a great athlete. You're in position. You're a physical guy. You're doing what you need to do most of the time until the last second, until the, the, the moment of truth, where you've got to have the awareness. You've got to turn your head around. you got to make plays on the ball. And that's just not what he's done consistently. Now, I do have high hopes for him because I, I think that he's a really good athlete. And he has, you're right, he has time to develop. But he's got to continue to develop. He's he's starting to do better. I think he I think he has improved throughout the season. I think he has started to display better ball skills and more awareness. And I'm just hopeful that continues as uh, his career goes on here in Athens. Now the the final question is also, or the final question about the cornerbacks is also about Dan Everett, but also about Julio Humphrey, Jay Croc. Straight up ask it. Curtis and I have kind of been tiptoeing around this for a couple of weeks, but Jay Croc is getting straight to the point. Is it time? for Julio Humphrey, Julian Humphrey, to start over Dalen Everett. Jay Kroc, I, I think the answer is yes. And I I feel like I've basically outright suggested this over the past couple weeks, but the answer is yes. The reason, in my opinion, that Everett has won the job in the first place was his ability to defend against the perimeter run game, the perimeter screen game. He's a bigger, more physical guy, and Kareem Moore puts a premium on that. you got to be able to do that in our defense. And Humphrey is a slider guy. Uh, he's not as physical of a run defender as a screen defender but I felt from the jump even when these guys are coming out of high school I've always felt that Julio Humphrey was a better cover guy I felt he was a better overall athlete and I personally think he demonstrated that on Saturday against Missouri I mean guys he played big time snaps for us big time snaps the dude played 71% of our snaps on Saturday and he came up with multiple big-time stops. Now, he got called for the one pass interference on the Missouri sideline, which I think was a completely phantom pass interference call. I'm not even sure he made contact with the Missouri defender. I thought it was a great play on his part. But he held up extraordinarily well and by far his most extended playing time and by far the biggest moment of his career against by far the best passing attack that we have seen to date this season. 
I think he changes direction better. I think he's a smoother athlete. I think he has better hips. All the things that you need in a cover guy, I think he does better than Dalen Everett. Now, there are things that Everett does better, right? That's why he's been playing over Humphrey for most of the season. But man, long term, I really like Humphrey as a cover guy. All right, next up, we have a question from Darren, one of our longtime listeners. Always appreciate it, buddy. Darren asks, is Missouri the new South Carolina? Why do they somewhat have our number, and why do we incessantly force the run against them when it's not really working? I hear you, Darren. I know the last two seasons, they have played us as well as anyone in the regular season. So that is true. Like Those are facts. Like We've seen these two games. But still, since we've been playing them dating back to 2012 when they joined the league, they've still only beaten us one time. So I don't know they have our number the way that South Carolina did for a while there during the Spur years when they were actually beating us on a fairly kind of somewhat consistent basis. That hasn't happened. Now, again, the last two years, you're exactly right. Missouri has played us as well as anyone in the country in the regular season. Now, I think it's a function of how they play. I think really defensively, they just give, a lot, give us a lot of issues with how aggressive they play against the run, their, their run blitzing, their selling out against the run, all those things that they do to try to take the run game away. And we've been so good protecting the passer in almost every other game. But it's just strange when they play that aggressive. We, we have these plays we're trying to dial up to take advantage of their aggressiveness, trying to hit some explosive shots down the field in the pass game. But we just haven't been able to consistently protect the passer long enough to allow a lot of those plays to develop. So it's been tougher for us offensively against them than it has other teams. I think that's just a function of the way that they play. And we have to find better answers for it. I do believe that. I would like to see us go on more of the screen game. We did to a degree. But, I mean, where's the tunnel screen, man? Tunnel screen would have gone, I mean, we ran it one time, right, to Mekhi Muse in the first half, and it was like third and long after a sack, and it didn't get the first down, but it picked up a chunk of yards. I would have run that play over and over and over again the way that they were pressuring us. I think we should have had better answers, maybe some different answers at times to what they were trying to, to, to do to us defensively, but the way they play defense is just different than how teams typically play against us. And, again, I go back to the outside zone plays I was detailing earlier. It's just a different kind of play. We just don't see it very much throughout the rest of the regular season against other opponents so when they run that over and over and over and over and over again it's just tough for us to defend it's a tough play for us they're able to stay ahead of the chains and that eats clock and that keeps the chains moving and gives them opportunities to stay in the game longer than most of our opponents do it's just one of those weird tough matches I think you're, you are right about that but I I would somewhat stop short of saying that they're like the new South Carolina because again South Carolina was a couple of years there where where they they were beating us man and that's while Missouri's come close, it hasn't really worked out the way. Again, they've only been this one time since 2012. All right, guys, we've got two more questions. And this, this one right here is a great one, guys. Obviously, on the preview episode that I will be recording for you guys on Wednesday, have that for you Wednesday night, I will be going deep into this Ole Miss football team. I'll give you guys as deep of a deep dive as you are going to find. I'm pumped for this one. I've been working for this one for a while now. Spent some time in the off, seat, off week working on this one. So, yeah, we'll give you a lot more into this Ole Miss football team, offensively, defensively, scheme-wise, personnel-wise, everything about this Ole Miss football team. But Trevor has a question, kind of a look-ahead question right now, and I'll dive into a little bit here. He asks, I haven't watched much of Ole Miss this season. Is there a part of their game offensively or defensively that could give Georgia fits. Yes, I'll give you one thing on offense and one thing on defense. Offensively, the way that they run misdirection is going to be an issue for us, especially if we do not have Pop Dumas Johnson. Pop has his deficiencies in certain areas, but the guy is a veteran, and he is a perfect fit to play against this style of team that really wants to run the football right at you. I know they put a lot of window dressing, which is part of the misdirection, but at the end of the day, they're trying to run the football downhill with Quinshaw Juckins. That's really what they want to do. And they do a ton of misdirection, guys, and they work a lot of constraints off of their few core base plays. 
For example, one of their base plays that they run over and over again is they'll take their guard and center, sometimes guard and tackle, and they will pull them one direction. And then they will hand the ball off to Judkins around the edge in the entirely opposite direction. Now, what does that do? Now, it might seem kind of counterintuitive. Why would you be running away from your pulling lineman, right? Because typically you run behind the pulling lineman. That's what you want to do, right? Well, not with Kiffin's offense. Now, they will sometimes run behind pullers. Don't get me wrong. And that's what that's what makes it tough. Sometimes they do run behind the pullers. Sometimes they don't. So it creates issues with who do you key? What do you key? Because a lot of times linebackers are keying the guards. They're keying the linemen. If they pull... That should give us indication of where this play is going. With Ole Miss, that becomes very, very difficult. So again, sometimes they might pull and the running back follows them. Sometimes they pull and the running back doesn't follow them. It creates a lot of issues in your reads and your eye discipline. And when they get your eyes in the wrong spot, which is really one of the things they're trying to do, then they're going to hit you with the explosive constraint play off of those base plays. And that's kind of how this Ole Miss offense works. And they do it with tempo, which makes it even more difficult because now you have to think even faster and you get kind of all frazzled and out of sorts. And before you know it, they're hitting explosive plays on the field and, and now you're you're down two touchdowns. So with the likelihood that we are going to have some young, much more inexperienced guys than Pop Dumas Johnson playing inside linebacker in this game, that does create some, some serious concerns for me. I'm not going to sugarcoat that, guys. I am very concerned about that. I really am. And then defensively, this is not like an elite defense, but they do a couple things really well. They rush the passer well, and they get in the backfield and create havoc well with tackles for loss. They are disrupted defensive front. That's one thing they do really well. They don't have elite talent, so they will take some chances. A lot like Missouri, right? And think about what we just saw with Missouri. With the run blitzes, that create a lot of issues for us. You think that Pete Golden, the defense coordinator, saw that? Hell yeah, he saw that. You better believe we're going to see a fair dosage of that again this week, and, and probably in some different ways. I also think they might have some better natural pass rushers off the edge. So we better have some answers. We better have some answers for a team, for a defense that's going to play us aggressively, a lot like Missouri did. Maybe not as aggressively as Missouri did, but aggressively nonetheless. We better have some answers for that and some better answers than we had against Missouri, some different answers than we had against Missouri because that absolutely, we saw that cause us some issues against Missouri and it's going to cause us issues again against Ole Miss if we do not find a way to respond to that better than we did against the Tigers. All right, guys, final question here. I said this one for last because it's more of like a schematics question. It's a good question. I wanted to make sure that I gave it enough time here. Lynn, who's been a long-time listener, really appreciate you, Lynn. Lynn asks, I'm wondering if you could explain what offensive pass interference is. I know it was overturned. Can a penalty be overturned? But what exactly is it? I know a lot about football, but sitting there in the stands with this going on, I admit, I felt uninformed. Please help. Yeah, this is a great question, Lynn. So I know exactly what play you're talking about. They called offensive pass interference against us in the fourth quarter at that point, late in the second half. And it was a critical moment because that would have essentially pushed us out of any chance to score a touchdown on that drive. We're trying to go ahead by two touchdowns, right? I think it was a series following the Nazir Stackhouse interception, right? I think it was that series. And they called offensive pass interference on us. I'm sitting there screaming from the stands. As soon as they threw the flag, I said, hell no, hell no, hell no, hell no. Pick that flag up. Review that, review that, review that. Because I knew what they were calling. They were calling a pick play there. Okay, so what they were trying to say is that we were blocking beyond the line of scrimmage and the play and the ball was thrown beyond the line of scrimmage. When that happens, that is offensive pass interference. If the ball is thrown beyond the line of scrimmage and you have a lineman or another receiver downfield blocking, that's offensive pass interference because you can you cannot create contact with a defender like that and keep them out of a play if the ball is thrown down the field. So if the defender can't stop the offensive player from making the catch, they can't physically you know, interfere with their ability to make the catch. Well, offensive players cannot physically interfere with the defender's ability to make the play if the ball is thrown down the field. But all bets are off 
when the ball is thrown behind the line of scrimmage. And we see this on a weekly basis, right? We see all these little screen plays, and you'll see offensive linemen get downfield. Like RPOs, RPOs, this is this happens every single time teams throw RPOs behind the line of scrimmage. Now, there's different kinds of RPOs, but if you watch an offensive line and they get four, five, six yards down the field, I mean, they get, a, they get a, a window, right? About three yards, four yards, really. But if they get beyond that and they're blocking and the ball is thrown beyond the line of scrimmage, then that is offensive pass interference. However, if the ball is thrown behind the line of scrimmage, then it's not offensive pass interference. Guys can get out there, receivers can block, some linemen can block. That's why sometimes you run a screenplay and it gets kind of blown up and it gets delayed a little bit. The running back might go beyond line of scrimmage a little bit. And sometimes you see this on crossing routes where you have a guy from the slot kind of cross the middle of the field and he'll catch the ball behind line of scrimmage and have blockers out in front of him. You might see this like when Brock Bowers comes, like he, we show like play action and he's playing H-back and then he comes across the formation. But instead of blocking the, the backside in, he heads out into the flat in a pass route. Well, when that happens, Brock is catching the ball behind line of scrimmage because we have receivers out there blocking for him already because receivers are blocking like it's a run play. And so if Brock catches the ball behind, beyond the line of scrimmage, then that's offensive pass interference. If he catches it behind the line of scrimmage, it's all legal, all good. No, no, no worries there. And that's what happened on that particular play. And that's why I was screaming from the stands that it was not offensive pass interference. The ball was behind the line of scrimmage. And that is why they stopped the game to review it. So I, I hope that answers your question, Lynn. That's one type of offensive pass interference. Now, if a receiver's just running a route and the offensive line's blocking pass, and he pushes, he pushes off from the uh, defender again, physically interferes with the defender's ability to, to make a play on the ball, then that is offensive pass interference. Like when you see the receiver kind of push off to create separation, like he extends his arms to push the defender away from him to create separation, that's offensive pass interference as well. That's very rarely called. It should be called a lot more, but the way the game's officiated, they never actually call it. Another uh, kind of offensive pass interference, you see like they call them like, Offenses call them rub routes, defenses call them pick plays. It's just a difference in connotation there. But when you have two guys kind of crossing each other in, let's say, a mesh route, and there's different ways you can run these these mesh routes and are these pick plays or rub routes, whatever you want to call them, but mesh is a popular way to do it. And when I say mesh, you have two receivers running from opposite directions, crossing paths with each other. And the idea is they are going to basically run each other's defenders into them. And that's going to make it tough for the defender to keep up with the guy across the across the field. He's going to have to run around the other receiver, come from the opposite direction, or he gets run right into him. And then it's just a pick. He's picked off. And now the receiver's running free on the other side of the field. And that's fine if receivers do that as long as they're actually in the process of running a real legitimate route. Now, where it becomes offensive pass interference is when the receiver just seeks out the defender and just posts up and tries to basically block the guy to create separation for the other receiver. That is illegal. You see that a lot in the red zone teams try to do that. When you don't have as much room, they want to create some separation there with against man coverage, and they'll run, run those routes. And I think it's offensive pass interference far more than it's called, but again, they rarely, rarely call that. But all right, guys, I think that does it for us. That exhausts all the questions that we got today. Another awesome batch of questions. Always appreciate each and every one of you that send these questions in every week. Want to make sure that we give you guys a chance to have your voice heard here on the Glory UJ podcast. After all, this is a podcast made for Georgia fans by Georgia fans. We want you guys to, to have your say on here. So thanks for the question, guys. And if you haven't sent some questions then please, anytime, guys, keep them coming. We take questions all week long, all year long. If anything's on your mind, you can send those questions to us on Twitter at Glory underscore UJ. You can also hit us up on Instagram. Just look for Glory UJ podcast. You can email us at Glory UJ 
Podcast at gmail.com. So plenty of ways to get in touch with us, guys. And we will make sure to get to as many of those questions as we possibly can each and every week. But all right, guys, appreciate you. I will be back with our full-on deep dive into this Ole Miss-Georgia matchup on Wednesday night. And then Charlie will be back with me on Thursday night to wrap the week up with our Week 11 Picks of the Week. I'm Tyler. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for being here. And, of course, as always, go dogs. <laughs>